Good morning to you. Uh, I shared this with First Service too as I, I got ready to, to come up. You know, I, we've, we've been doing this for a while, but I, I thought the same thing um, as, a, as even a youth pastoring would share with the students on a, on a Sunday night that um, just, just before we get started and I get to dive into God's word with you, what a privilege it is to get to share that. It, it, it's not really something to think about as you prepare it, as you write it, as you, as you put things together, but when you pause for a moment and you realize the incredible blessing it is to get to share God's word with a group of people, a family of believers, it's just, it's kind of overwhelming. And then when you take that in light of the persecuted church and you realize that, that in all of those gatherings, whether they're big or small or whatever, even in the smallest of groups, somebody within that group is probably leading that group because by nature people are followers. And for each and every one of those people to be doing that, it's just an incredible thing to be a part of. And so thank you for being a part of that with me. I want to point your attention to the back of the bulletin today because there's a couple of questions that I put on there for you that are pretty serious questions, pretty thought-provoking questions that tie directly to the passage today. And so, so just be aware of those questions and begin to process those as we get to that text and you begin to think about that into this week to come. We're going to begin today by just reading the very beginning of the passage we're going to study. Ephesians chapter 5, we're just going to read the couple very first verses together. So if you haven't opened your Bible, please do, or open your app, whatever you need to, to find that. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So we're just going to cover that first couple verses to start with. I want to read them. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, I want you to think about this question. Have you ever tried to imitate something? Regardless of your age, even those of us that might be a little more well-seasoned in life, as a young child, did you ever try to imitate something? If so, what was it? What was it that you tried to imitate? Maybe it was a singer. Maybe it was an athlete. I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. My favorite sport, basketball. I had a basketball goal in my driveway. I played basketball all of the time. And so, because I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, the best basketball player of all time was, of course, Michael Jordan. And so, I did not practice Michael Jordan dunks. I did not have a lowerable goal, so that wasn't possible. But I did practice the turnaround and fadeaway jumper. He kind of was the one that perfected that, made that a move in the NBA as a 6'6 guard, could post up big guys. And it was just a fun, fun, fun thing to practice. I spent hours and hours and hours and hours outside mimicking that, practicing that basketball move. How many of you remember the old Be Like Mike commercial from the, the early 90s? Yeah, it was a Gatorade commercial. I was actually going to show it, but its quality, it was actually terrible. Like, I remembered it way better. It was way cooler when I was a kid. Um, so you can look it up. But just hold on to the old memory that you have and, and go with it, because that's way better than what you, what you would actually see if you looked it up on YouTube. Have you ever tried to imitate a recipe? Recreate a recipe? You tried to recreate grandma's homemade fill-in-the-blank, right? How'd that turn out? Some of you, good. Some of you, it took many, many attempts, and you're still trying to to get there. I know for me, uh, my thing that I wanted to replicate was my grandma's homemade cinnamon rolls. She makes the best homemade cinnamon rolls in the entire world. Um, My family's going to get on me because I haven't made them in a few years now. It's been a while, hasn't it? Um, But I finally got really, really close, close enough that they got my grandma's seal of approval because I took her some to make sure she thought that they were close enough to, to her own. Have you ever said the words, I wish I could be like so and so? In some ways, it seems to be human 
nature. It seems to be part of God's design for us. We look to those that have accomplished, achieved, created, and we wish that our skills could be like theirs. We might want to have their voice. We might want to have their looks. We might want to have their intelligence. What if I told you that actually might be a part of God's design for us? I think I can say that with pretty good certainty. The word that Paul uses in this text and elsewhere five times throughout the New Testament, mimetes, mimetes, sounds a lot like our word imitate. That's where we get it from. All of the references Paul uses are for positive things. One of the most famous ones is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, Paul is not claiming any supernatural skills or abilities or superiority over anyone, no. He knows this. He knows that he's doing his best to follow Jesus, trying to become more like Jesus every day. So if, if you were to choose to follow his example, then at least, while not perfect, his example would be pointing you in the right direction. Now, why on earth would God create us this way with this desire to follow someone else's example, the desire to be like someone else. Well, Paul's not the only one that shares this idea. Both Peter and John in their writings also express similar ideas. But the reason is actually pretty obvious. God created us with this nature so that we could ultimately fulfill the commands of Jesus. Jesus' words, John 13, 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Simply put, Jesus says, hey, everyone, be like me. So as we move into today's text, the following idea that I'm going to share with you, I really want you to view this text in light of this idea have you ever in your life seen a picture of Jesus? Now, probably all of you immediately was, well, yeah, of course, I've seen lots of pictures of Jesus. Well, I will contest that here and now. You have indeed seen many different artist renderings of Jesus and what they maybe believed Jesus looked like. Few, very few, if any of those at all even come close to what Jesus really looked like. Most of those famous works were created many, many centuries after the historical Jesus existed. And for some reason, these historical works of art always seem to fail to take into consideration two very important qualities of Jesus. One, he was Jewish. And two, he was from the Middle East. For some reason, most artist renderings that we've seen of Jesus, you and I growing up, don't include either one of those facts. Jesus looked like a Jew, not a white European. Okay, I'm sorry, it's true in anything to the, the, but I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a very specific reason. We don't know what Jesus looks like. There are no statues of Jesus. There has not been some relic dug up in all of Israel with some tile mosaic of a picture of the real Jesus. And I think there's a reason. And that's because you and I, believers, followers of Jesus, we are called to be his likeness here on earth. Once he frees us from our sinful desires and we begin to live for him, he can now be seen in the lives of his followers. You and I, we're to be different from this world. You and I are a physical representation of Jesus to this very community. Jesus left us with a gift, 
and a great challenge. He left us with the gift of his spirit, an incredible gift. When we believe and are baptized into Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him, then the spirit begins to conform us, to mold us into the image of Jesus. Those famous fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the ways of Christ. And when our lives begin to exhibit those characteristics, then we begin to look like Jesus, don't we? People will see that. They will see Jesus within us. Hopefully you notice that Paul has always bring everything right back to Jesus because it's not about me and it's not about you and our ability to be like Jesus. No, quite different. It's all about Jesus and why we should become like him. We'll be, become like him because he loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God on our behalf. So I ask you to look at the rest of today's text through that lens, through that idea. How you and I live our lives will either show Jesus to others or it will not. None of us will ever be perfect in our life. We all understand that. But we do have the perfect spirit of a perfect God working within us to conform us into the perfect likeness of Jesus. So with that in mind, consider Paul's words, verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint, a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live. Be very careful, Christians, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart unto the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that the passage we just read together does not fly in America today. No one, including Christians, want to admit that these words are in here or this advice or this way of living exists. We followers of Jesus, a lot of us want to live just like everybody else, say what everything else, everybody else says, do what everybody else does and say, oh, but I'm saved because I'm with Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. If you're with Jesus, then you can't be like the world. But we ask, what, what, what about our freedom? This is the free country. We can do whatever, in theory, that we want within the law and we could even argue that probably in our country currently. I thought, wait a minute, in Christ, I have freedom in Christ to do whatever I want, right? Uh, well, yes, kind of. <laughs> That's the height of Western thinking, you see. We want to bring the life of Christ, and we want to bring it into modern-day American Western logic and lifestyle. What Paul points out is the absolute, not just wrong, but sinful point of view that this is all coming from. Because elsewhere, Paul writes in, in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, his grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is urging, Paul is begging his readers, do not be like the world. Don't do it. When you commit to Christ, you embrace what he did for you. You offer your body, your life, as a living sacrifice to him. So we must allow him to transform and renew us, renew our mind. We are to represent Jesus. How on earth can we do that if we're living a sexually immoral lifestyle? Is it possible? The answer is no. It's, it's simply not possible. If that is the sin that God has wrapped around your life, then he is begging you to seek help. Paul elsewhere says, flee from sexual temptation. Run away from it. If that's what gets it, you go. Get as far away from it as you possibly can. You see, when you're living in the light of God's mercy and God's grace, then you consider everything that he did for you. And when you begin to consider that, and then you start to think about the words that fly out of your mouths, there's simply no place for obscenity. Carefully, Consider the words and the impact that they could have on others. As you get frustrated, as you get angry, as you get perturbed at people, as you just flippantly joke about things, are the words you're using leading someone closer to Christ? Or if they knew nothing of Jesus but only that you were a follower, would they push him away? It's something to consider. Because when our speech begins to reflect the gratitude and thankfulness that we have for Christ, when gossip and complaining no longer rule our tongue, people will notice something different about you. And that difference, of course, is Jesus within you. Paul throws on there to not be foolish, to not get drunk. Why? Why? Because we're to be examples of God if we're followers of his. There is no good that comes from those choices. And what I've found in conversations with people is the reason, their motivation for doing these things from the language to the lifestyle to whatever is, there's something in their reason behind it or excuse that makes them feel good, makes them feel better. It's their way of dealing with or coping with or handling or whatever else might be the case. In other words, what someone might consider to be good as a result of these activities are for selfish pleasure. Paul in Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourself not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others see what we end up having to do is we have to reconcile our lifestyle choices with the life that christ has in store for us the one that jesus desires for us to have ultimately the life that jesus himself gave his life for you and i to have how do those things and the choices we're making add together. Paul's words can seem harsh. They can. He says, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. That person's an idolater. Why? Because they're putting themselves above everything, including God. No immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. No one? Now, now Paul, that seems pretty judgmental. That seems pretty harsh. How, how can you say such a thing? What about God's grace? What about God's mercy? Yes, those things are very real. Paul's already addressed those. Remember, it is by grace that we have been saved. So what's going on? Well, in order to receive that grace, in order to receive that mercy, we've got to place our lives in the hands of God. And those of us in bondage to our desires for the things that Paul is referring to, 
We haven't fully committed those desires over to God yet. We have not submitted ourselves fully to his authority. God calls for those of us who are struggling or even pursuing those sinful behaviors to call on his name and to repent. Now, please hear this right. That doesn't mean you won't still struggle. That's not what we're talking about. We absolutely will still struggle. What it means is there's hope. But we have to surrender those things to him. We cannot be in control because we will always lose. But none? No one, Paul? What? That's not what I've heard. In the modern-day liberal theology church, that's, that's, not, that's not what you hear. You're a much different story about forgiveness and being able to do whatever you want, having freedom in Christ to explore and experiment and do whatever is necessary. I find it interesting that Paul follows that advice with these words, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one come along and tell you something that isn't backed by the truth of the gospel because for such things God wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore don't be partners with them have nothing to do with them believers even have been lied to the father of lies is absolutely alive and well in this world now some people will flip the coin and say well you just need to quit judging people and in a sense absolutely they're right we are not to judge it is not our job that is God's job alone in the heavenly throne we cannot look on a person that does not know the love of Jesus and judge them in any way. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us something quite different. We're to look at these people and love them. But you see, there's a different set of standards that we have to abide by with, when we are within the love of Jesus. Something that most people forget because they consider this Bible one big work and they, they forget this idea that each of these letters, each of these letters that Paul wrote was written to a very specific group of people, all of whom were believers in Jesus. Paul is not writing the letter to the Ephesians to the world as a whole. Does the world receive it? Yes. Will the world use it? Yes. But he wrote it to believers. It is our guide. It is our way of life. It is who we should be in Christ. It is not something for us to force on those that do not know Jesus yet. We have to think about those ideas. We, as believers, are to hold each other accountable. We do need to bring up sin problems in our brothers' and sisters' lives. If there's a sin problem in someone's life, it means that they are not right spiritually. So the question becomes, A, are we praying for that person? Are we going to them and checking on them? Are we trying to help them in the issues that they are struggling with? We're not judging. We're genuinely concerned for them. We know it is not the will of Jesus for them to live their life that way. And as a believer, not to intervene, not to share the truth with them, would be to not love them. And of course, that is not the way of Jesus. This passage it's not judgmental in any way. Remember, it's not to the outside world. It is to believers in Jesus. Paul's advice is for believers on how to live. Second, it's a person's actions ultimately that condemn a person, not the words of Paul. Now, the Spirit could use anything, including the words of Paul, to condemn, to provoke someone to movement in these words, to convict someone. Third, these words are to help save people from God's righteous judgment, from God's wrath. Our role isn't to condemn anyone, nor would we. Our role is to set an example, the example of Christ for them, to become like Jesus for them ultimately to see. Now to repeat verse 15, be very careful then how you live, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days, they're evil. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I've read this years ago as a, as a more immature Christian, I would read this and be like, Paul, what, are, what is wrong with you? Like, how could anyone live their life like that? What kind of advice is that? Don't you know what people go through, what people are suffering? As you begin to go through that, remember where he is when he's writing this. He's in prison with a death sentence. I don't know what you're going through in life, but I think you could throw this up against any issue that we're dealing with. I know they're personal. I know we're dealing with loss. We're dealing with disease. We're dealing with all kinds of things in our life. But I'm just comparing apples to apples and saying Paul's life is probably as difficult as any of ours. And so when you put those together and he's asking us to do these things, does he expect us to do it every, do you think every single day of Paul's life was a joyous, amazing occasion? Because if you do, I, I don't think we know Paul well. I think he had some bad days now and again. I truly do. But we also know he did, while in prison, sing and pray and cry out psalms. And we saw prison doors, what? Open up. <laughs> and we saw entire groups and families come to Christ because of his singing and his praying in the worst of circumstances. So he's giving us a practical example. Though hard to follow, he would admit for sure. Here's the reality. As believers, we have to be careful how we live in this world. I cannot tell you how many believers have told me, I don't care what people think of me. But they say it in regards to doing whatever they want. Jesus would never ever do that. You absolutely should care how people think of you in the light of Jesus. Do they see Jesus in you? Because if they don't, then you really should care. Now, you don't care if they hate you because you love Jesus. That's a whole different conversation. We got to be careful how we walk. We are followers of Christ. We are not walking aimlessly through this world. We have an absolute certain and clear destination at the end of our lives. And we're surrounded and we're casually walking with people that have no purpose, have no direction, no direction whatsoever, and yet we know the way. How could we point someone in the right direction if we're not even on the right path ourselves? Our walk is to be in the wisdom of God. It's not enough to just have a head knowledge of God, to just show up and be a part of the family of God. Remember, even the demons believe and tremble and fear of the knowledge of God. We have to live as wise people. We have to implement the ways of the Lord within our lives, knowing him in such a way that we can understand his will, that we can understand and sense his desires for us. Remember, earlier, Paul tells us Jesus has these good works prepared, ready for us to do, and he doesn't want us to miss a single opportunity. That's why he has them waiting on us. He wants us to make the most of every divine appointment we possibly can. He knows we're going to miss some, but he wants us to do the best we can. Paul comments that the times are evil. If Paul was resurrected from the dead and saw the world today, what would he say? Hmm, nothing's changed is exactly what he would say. The times are no less evil now than they were then. Quite honestly, it's probably very, very similar. And he shares with the people of his time, hey, I know the world around you is evil. Here is how you get through. Rely on the Spirit of God within you. Don't rely on the vices of this world. Drugs, alcohol, sex, money, power. But instead, be filled with this spirit. All of those things will mess with your witness. They will cause you to miss opportunities before you. They may even lead you and others away from Jesus. 
Think about how your lifestyle, your language can lead people away from Jesus. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Encourage one another with the very words of God. And that's what he's talking about in these psalms and this singing. I don't know, unless you've experienced it, I don't know if you understand what your words mean to people. When you take the time to single out an individual with a card, a letter, or just a great conversation of encouragement, and you talk to them about what they do or what you've seen in them or how they, they, you see them serving Jesus in whatever way, it fills them up. It empowers those of us that serve, doesn't it? When you get those kind and encouraging words, it fills you up with that spirit. You're propelling them on to continue to do those good works that God has prepared them to do. Your encouragement of them could be one of those very good works. Don't forget how important those words are. When we live thankful lives, these are the keys to surrounding this world in which we live. Did you notice, of course, at the end of this, what did Paul do? He put it all back in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He always does. And as we go through these issues, as we struggle with these things, we always should surrender them right back to Jesus as well. You probably noticed earlier, if you were following along, that we skipped a section of text. I do that on purpose. Today I did it because it is perfect to end this message with. And so I pulled out starting with verse 8 because I thought it was a great way to wrap things up. So go backwards to verse 8. We left this little section out. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out, those are big words, find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As believers, wading through this life, the issues that we have, observing the lives of others, it can be really, really easy to start to get cynical, can't it? To find other people kind of hard to love for a host of reasons and lifestyle choices. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul says, hey, wait a minute. As we consider who we are to become in Christ, don't forget who you were. Don't forget who you were in darkness. Don't forget what God has saved you from. Don't forget what he saved you to, and please, please, please don't forget who he saves you to be, a child of light. Paul reminds us that we now contain the light of the world within us. His name is Jesus. So live like it. Through the power of the blood of Jesus, we've overcome. We've conquered the darkness of this world in which we live. I, so many people over the years have asked, what do you think God wants me to do? As a child of God, what is it you think we want me to do? I love the way that Paul describes this. This is so simple. Paul simply says, you got to find out. You got to find out what pleases the Lord. You got to get out there and you got to try it. The opportunities are endless. No one is, or not everyone, sorry, is created to serve God in every way. We would all agree to that. But we could probably have a conversation as to whether or not are you willing to serve God in any way that he might call you to. You see, the reality is he called every single one of us, every one of us, to serve in a unique way with specific skills, specific abilities, 
passions, desires. He'll even take into account the things you like and the things that you don't. But what I've found in about 25 years now of of working with folks in a capacity like this, most people aren't willing to get out of the boat and figure it out what it is that pleases the Lord. They want to do one of two things. They either want God to tell them what to do. And he could do that, yes, but he probably won't because he wants you to discover it. Or they want to tell God what they want to do. That's a whole other conversation. We'll go there another day. We got to extend ourselves. We got to get involved. We got to go find out. But are you willing? Maybe some of us need a little brotherly or sisterly push out of the boat, if you will, a little encouragement from someone, a friend, because it is really easy in this country especially to get comfortable. Just take it all in. It's easy to allow someone else to do it, to try it. And so our question then becomes, will you join us? Will you find out, will you begin to pursue what pleases the Lord with your life? because he has things laid out for you to do. The very final part of this verse challenges us to literally have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. These deeds accomplish nothing good whatsoever. In fact, they're in opposition with the God that has saved us. How could we have anything to do with them? Do you ever notice how absolute Paul's terms always are? There is no gray matter in the world of Paul and his writing. He is always right. It is black. It is white. It is that simple. He always presents things that way. So there is no confusion. There are no room for questions. Our role, he says, is to expose these evil deeds. Expose and judge are not the same thing at all. We're not to judge someone caught in evil. We're not to share their deeds with the entire community. What we are to do is to bring the light of God into the situation. It might be to confront them about the wrongness of their act with the truth and the love of Jesus. You see, in the world in which we live, much like Paul's, people caught in a lifestyle of sin might not even know their lifestyle is sinful. Yes, the Spirit is and will convict them of sin in their life, but the Spirit might have a role for you to play in that process. You have to be willing. It is possible that they've never been exposed to the truth. It is very possible, like the people in the first century church, that they don't know who Jesus is. They've heard the name, but they don't know who he is. They don't know what he did, and especially they don't know how much he loved them and still does to this very day. Our role is to help them set them into a right relationship, point them into a right direction toward that of repentance. We are bringing them into the light. Now, there's some pain with that because the light exposes the darkness, doesn't it? But the reality is just as much as it exposes the darkness, it also exposes the light to them, the light of good. And thus the light can bring that person to life. Hence the passage, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and cast Christ on you. If you have never known the light of Jesus, he is shining on you right now. He has awakened your soul. If you've never given your life over to that light, then today could be the day will you respond to him. Maybe you were exposed to a truth that you didn't realize, or maybe God will confront you through those questions on the back and say, oh my goodness, what if someone was following me? Where would I be leading them? Because as a believer, that is a reality of who God has called us to be. We are to be leading people to Christ, aren't we? But did you know that Paul could just as easily, this last part, be talking about those of us within the church? You see, there is a sleepiness that has 
completely engulfed a lot of the American church, especially we've relaxed. Too many believers have fallen asleep in their faith. Famous author and pastor A.W. Tozer wrote it this way, Christians have become morally good but unenlightened. They were religious but unanointed. It is perfectly possible for a good, faithful, loyal church member to be spiritually asleep. Being in a spiritual state that parallels natural sleep. When your husband, your wife, your child, your relative, your friend, or even you go to sleep at night, the fact that you're unconscious and completely out of the running for a while doesn't seem to bother you, does it? You, could, you, you know that normally you wake up again. You're not dead. But you certainly are cut off from your environment, all but that which is reflex, breathing and a few other things. Likewise, it is possible to be a Christian, to be in the church, and yet be asleep spiritually. Then it takes a passage like Ephesians 5 to be awakened suddenly. You might be ashamed of yourself. You might be angry with yourself. You might be frustrated and disconcerted and say, what's the matter with me? All this time I was almost awake, but not quite Paul and the Holy Spirit, God himself, can use the words of Ephesians chapter 5 to wake us up, church, to who we should be in Christ. Don't miss that moment. Father God, these words of Paul are, are challenging, to say the least. Father, but we are called to be something else, something different. We all have our reasons. We all have our vices. We all have the things that we do in life that we know do not bring glory and honor to God. And most of us will make excuses for why it's okay for us to continue in those things, and Jesus loves us anyway. And that is true. He absolutely does love us. But he calls us to a lifestyle of sacrifice, where we sacrifice our selfish ambitions, our selfish desires, in favor of pursuing him in this world. We sacrifice those things that could potentially lead other people away from Christ. We might be able to handle it just fine. But if a non-believer or a new believer were to see us demonstrating these things in our life, it would push them away from you. And Father, you tell us there are bad things in store for believers who do such things. We pray that none of us will be those people. We pray that today is a day of awakening in our lives, that we can evaluate and see our lives. Father, that you can help us, guide us, empower us, strengthen us to overcome these difficulties these things that we're pursuing that aren't of you. Father, if there are people here today that don't know you, that haven't ever experienced this life that you have to offer, we as always want to open that door to the invitation to invite them to the reality that you gave your life for them so they could come forward and, Father, be made perfect in your name, be forgiven of their past no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing. You fully accept and embrace them as they are and then desire to begin that new work in them, creating them to be the person that Paul is describing in this passage. Father, as a church, I pray that we can spiritually awaken to the point that we see the needs around us, both within our building, within our community. And we strive to meet those needs in your son's name, that we'll have the spirit to empower us to overcome whatever obstacle might be in our way. Father, may this passage be an encouragement as well as a kick in the face if that's what's needed. Because, Father, that's what your word does if we take it to heart. In Jesus' name we pray.